I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is author and founder of Chesapeake Bay Candle, May Shu. Her new book is Burn, How Grit, Innovation, and a Dash of Luck Ignited a Multi-Million Dollar Success Story. In her new book, May She tells the story of how she built Chesapeake Bay Candle, filling the home decor shelves at Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, and eventually Target. She went on to meet and counsel thousands of entrepreneurs and business people, and even advised President of the United States Barack Obama on the topic of job creation. To help small businesses in the age of COVID-19, she's recently launched Yes, She May, an online shop for well-designed products in fashion, wellness, beauty, and home from women-owned brands. She's a trustee of the University of Maryland and a member of Fortune's Most Powerful Women. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Catherine. Great to have you. Okay. This is like uh, the uh, success story, I guess, right? The American dream. You have lived it. You are living it. You continue to live it. So let's start from the beginning. I mean, how do you, I guess, how do you find the courage as a woman and an immigrant to start a business in the beginning as you did, uh, penniless, without any contracts, and then you end up, you know, uh, being the head of this multi-million dollar empire? It was um, not by design, for sure. Uh, I grew up in China. I was uh, trained at a very early age um, in a very fortunate way in 1979 when China has already opened up to the world um, thanks to no small part to President Nixon's visit in 1974, the country found itself uh, very curious about the world, as well as not having a lot of diplomats that are trained to really deal with what um, the world has brought on. So they decided, uh, the government of China, to start um, a group of eight middle and high schools where kids can go and start language training in an emerging manner, which is very, um, I would say, frontier in education. And I was one of those uh, fortunate 12-year-olds that got enrolled in um, foreign language middle school in Hangzhou. And I was always dreaming to be a diplomat, and I loved the idea of traveling. Um, So when the opportunity came, my uh, university years, when I was uh, also uh, continuing my diplomatic training, I was able to work for the World Bank um, in China, where they started to invest in um, projects to help the the country to sort of shore up its infrastructure, its environmental protection laws, and a lot of the areas that it's lacking. And I was able to translate, and that experience uh, gave me a lot of exposure, and uh, long behold, when I eventually came here to receive my um, master's degree, I chose to study uh, mass communication at University of Maryland with the goal of working for the World Bank afterwards. But it didn't happen uh, because of the war with Iraq in 1992, and the bank is heavily funded by the U.S. government, and they had a high freeze. So like a lot of graduates now, I found myself without a job uh, after my graduation in 1992. And uh, frankly, um, it was not an easy 
uh, time for any foreign student because of the the, the economic slump uh, coming with the war. And this is probably the story of a lot of immigrants. Um, there's something about immigrants that are similar to what makes entre- entrepreneurs unique. I think we all share a particular curiosity and a level of risk-taking that allow us to leave our comfort and our home, what's familiar, to pursue something that is entirely different and entirely unknown. So I was thinking, you know, I think that's a really important Uh, point. I just want to stop you there because I do think, you know, um, that is such an important point. And I think that people, especially people here in the United States, don't realize that what it really means to leave your country, your language, your culture, and the challenges just to come here and to be able to overcome those kinds of things uh, are are huge. I, I had a conversation with someone just about this very issue yesterday and uh, that 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 said something about the person the strengths and the fortitude and the motivation and all of those kinds of things and I think sometimes if you are uh, um, you know you've been born in the United States and you've been here for several generations it, it you don't realize that you don't there's not an understanding of that and I think it's really important to point that out which you do obviously I love the fact that you uh, immediately um, recognize that particular sort of reason behind a lot of that um, entrepreneurs actually have a lot of immigrant uh, immigration background. If you look at some of the most successful Fortune 500 companies from Google's co-founder to the Zoom founders, um, you know, there's some really uh, great stories there. I, I can't emphasize that sometimes you can have that mentality, but what I always think that we should share is that don't be afraid to adopt an immigrant's point of view or their lenses. Um, the lenses that in a way is not so jaded. Uh, there's not such a expectation that things will work out and it's always there. There's no entitlement of any kind. It's just putting yourself out there to say, you know, I'm going to give this a shot because guess what? There's no options. <laughs> that is what happened to me when I was in New York. I was having a job that pay me 19000 a year, um, I know that, um, you know, for most liberal arts students, even with a graduate degree, you do not expect very high pay, but uh, paying $19,000 was really low. And a lot of it is a little bit of uh, taking advantage of the fact that, you know, immigrants need jobs, and even if they're well, you know, educated, they'll take anything. Um, they'll start anywhere because... In their mind, uh, it's better than going back to a country that they already left. And um, there are many reasons we come to uh, a different countries for exploring our opportunities. Um, and at the end of the day, um, there is more resilience built in because of that particular decision. So I was not happy in New York. I was not happy with um you know, my life at that time, I was married, and my husband, who's also from China, lives in Washington, and uh, where I settled in the beginning, and then I work in New York. So every weekend, I took the train, came back, and then every Monday morning, very early, he dropped me off in the train station, and there goes a week, uh, you know, by myself. 
But there was one thing that was remarkable was that the company that hired me put me in a hotel near Bloomingdale. <laughs> this is very dangerous, <laughs> as you probably know. <laughs> very dangerous, <laughs> yes. Things. Very dangerous. And I'm glad I didn't have a very big, um, you know, amount of credit card, uh, you know, limit. But um, you can imagine for someone making $19,000, there's probably yeah. nothing I can afford, which was okay. the case. Um, Maybe I remember, one lipstick though, and that's was, about it. <laughs> that's exactly. I remember it was like my experiment, my theater, my entertainment. Every day, as soon as I finish eating, which is very simple when you live by yourself, I would walk over there because, you know, they close at seven. And sometimes I was, um, I was just thinking about it as like my escape, you know, imagine a child growing up in a country with nothing. I've never seen a store like that with, it's like an empire. Um, there's a certain ambiance as soon as you enter, as if everyone has been airbrushed, you know, they just look like they're coming out of a movie um, and everything is exquisite and you can touch them, you know, in countries where I used to live, you know, where I used to come from, where China was um, still very closed. Everything is locked in a cabinet and you have to ask and they look at you and they decide, you know, if they want to show you or not. So this level of materials and innovations and packaging and fragrances is multi multidimensional. And I remember everyone would hate those ladies that has fragrance samples to spray on them and not me. I love to know what they have each day. And it just um, become a destination for me. However, this is where the immigration, immigrants' eyes, so the immigrants' uh, point of view started to kick in. Very quickly, after a few times uh, going into Bloomingdale, I started sharing with my uh, ex-husband what I found was very interesting. I would go up to the second floor. At that time, it was the designer floor. So you see the Donna Karens and Kevin Kleins, wonderful, gorgeous women's wear, very crisp using men's wear fabric and has that very uh, simple design aesthetics, but very rich uh, material and very nice tailoring. It's exactly how I always liked fashion, uh, even though I wasn't trained as a designer. That's the kind of aesthetic that I always uh, go, you know, go look for. And then you go up, uh, each floor gets more and more uh, traditional and lack, la less interesting for me. And then you end up in the home floor. It's usually the top floor where home goods, sofas, dinnerware, uh, decorative accessories are displayed. And it's like going back to your grandma's home. It's also denty with uh, furniture that are very ornate, a, a little bit gilded, very heavy colors, um, nothing that speaks to a woman who would, you know, wear the Donna Karens on the street and they would go home to a grandma's house that looks very old and traditional. So I keep asking my uh, ex-husband, David, I said, David, what do you think is the reason why there's nothing contemporary so streamlined um, in the home industry? And this is, you know, this is the interesting point is that he at some point just said, you know, I think you're tired of your job and maybe we should just quit and start something in the home business. That's how it started. So when you asked me the question, um, what what does it take or what made me decide to become an entrepreneur? 
I think it's two things. It's out of desperation. I was absolutely miserable and desperate. The second thing is um, seeing an opportunity and a gap that um, I feel it's probably worth exploring. Well, let's stop there because you say for you it was being desperate and then seeing this opportunity. Now, what about people who, uh, so we can relate to this, uh, how, what about people who don't feel desperate? What about those who, you know, they live in the United States, they go to the school, they graduate, they hate their jobs as well, but uh, they are not necessarily desperate. And so how, how does that fit into the picture? Well, I know a lot of friends. Um, I actually have a lot of friends who have very good jobs. I remember one of them, I can't name the name here, but she is actually a reporter that write about business success stories for a major newspaper. And I remember one day she just said, May, I don't want to write it. I want to be the it. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point, uh, there is, a, I think what inspired a lot of people to start business, um, there are always different reasons, but one of the reasons is because they don't like their current job. But another reason that is even more influential is that they see the gap. It's usually because they can't find something and they devise something at home and they decided that if they like it, maybe they should give it a try. Or they actually. And how do you make that? How do you make that leap? Like you have that you making the leap is another thing, too. Okay, they 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 they, they may be desperate at their job. They may be. um, So then you have to make the leap. And what what how did you do that? Because you didn't have any money. And as I said, I think I said in the beginning of the interview, you didn't have any contacts. You know, you're you're. the only other person it sounds like that you're talking to is your husband, David, or were there other people who helped you uh, take that leap, no, push forward? No, not, well, actually, I, I, I want to make sure that the, the listeners understand. I did not have any money when I came to this country for a very good reason. You know, not many people get paid well. And uh, in order to make this uh, journey, my family uh, emptied all the, that we have to make it happen. But as soon as I got here, um, both my husband, David, at that time, and I ended up working, and we saved everything. So even though we were only working for a year and a half, for him, it's a little bit longer because he started working when I was in school, we did have some savings by the time we both quit. And it is a bootstrapping exercise, but we do have a, uh, maybe forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 between the two of us. Because we basically live on nothing. We, we eat very uh, frugally. We rent, you know, the, the graduate housing uh, at University of Maryland. I was able to get a scholarship as well as uh, paid tuition. So we were able to save all those years that we, we moved here. And I don't think um, most people will completely go out of their limb to start a business. It's not to say that there's no opportunities to borrow. Um, you know, SBA, the Small Business Administration now, guarantee a lot of loans, which at my time, it's impossible because I'm a foreigner, so I wouldn't be able to qualify. And I don't have a financial record that always uh, shows the, the company's doing uh, business with a profit. Later on, I actually tapped into that, and it worked. For me, I feel the the, the leap into uh, action is what defines entrepreneurs from those who always regret they didn't do it. 
that I have to raise do you think my Americans hand to say. do you think Americans have become soft that we're soft I mean we are still you know we are a middle class society uh, trying to improve upon that because that's been changing but do you think that that keeps us in, in terms no, of no I don't think uh, so no I yeah, think you, t- yeah talk stu- to us about that I don't think so so I don't think so. I think I, you know, I have so many kids come to me, uh, my own stepchildren, my, my son, you know, they all are very entrepreneurial. Maybe they're not bootstrapping the way I would be, but they're making their business investment with the savings we gave them, with the red envelope money during the holidays. Um, they're, they're remarkably sort of resource poor, and they don't do big business until they have some money and they invest a little bit more into the inventory. So, I do feel entrepreneurship is not just a result of a one's individual curiosity or that, that, that passion. You know, I mentioned the, the word passion. That's why it's a burn, right? Uh, the word burn is not just about burning candles. It's also burning your own passion. So I do feel it's, it's everywhere. And, and our country in general really facilitate anyone who has those burning passions to start something. Um, I do think in certain parts of the world, you find more people that are um, wanting to be more independently uh, sort of a, a business person by themselves. Uh, that probably is the case with Asian background. Uh, lots of Indians, lots of Chinese, uh, Koreans uh, really like to challenge themselves to start a new business, mostly because, you know, they have a lot of history of families or friends that they can see. So it's not so much a country. It's really about how, where you grow up, uh, your ecosystem, the village you're brought up with. You know, I use the word village as in it takes a, uh, a village to raise a child by Hillary Clinton. So the village we grow up in really define who we are and how we're going to proceed. That's why my book is really a call for us to become even more supportive to entrepreneurship particularly well, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship and small businesses, because I mentioned this in the beginning in the intro that um, in the age of COVID, COVID-19, you recently launched uh, Yes, She May, which is an online shop. Uh, how did that come about? Because, yeah, I mean, that's adapting, I assume, to you're someone who's, I guess, uh, one of those people who who's very able to pivot and is agile and goes forward depending on whatever the circumstances are. And in the, you know, in the, now in the age of COVID, you've done just that. So talk to this company that you recently launched. Yes, she may. Yes, Catherine. Um, I have been building a candle business, as you mentioned, called Chesapeake Bay Candle for 25 years. During those 25 years, I was fortunate because those were the golden ages of a honeymoon between the world's two biggest countries. As you recall, uh, when I started in the early 1990s, export from China started to rise. They become the factory of the world. There is a, a little bit of a, a great sort of feelings between the countries, and um, it's growing very well. So my experience was very positive, and I was able to grow the business by setting up three factories, one in China, one in Vietnam, when uh, the duty uh, fight with China become really uh, difficult to continually sourcing from China. And eventually, I don't know if you know, I set up a factory outside of Baltimore in Maryland, which is the first factory that is being built in Maryland in the last three decades. So 
after my experience, I feel that I was more of an exception in the women's business because I knew how to scale thanks to my background working in an international environment. I was never afraid to check out Mexico, check out Philippines, and go into Thailand to see if those countries are ripe for investment of a factory. And I decided they're not for all kinds of reasons. But when I went to Vietnam in 2004, the country was just starting to open to the world, and I became the first U.S. factory to be invested in in uh, northern China, in Haiphong. It's a port city. So I have a lot of those supply chain, like you said, pivot. How do we recreate a new supply chain? How do we take advantage of the previous factory and train the factory's workers in a new one? Even when I was setting up in the U.S., I you know, invited engineers uh, from China and Vietnam to help set up the new factory here so that we can be up and running. So those what were the biggest roadblocks for you at that time? Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, when you describe it, I have to say, May, it sounds not simple, but it sounds like, you know, you knew what you were doing. You very went on this difficult. path. You had all the. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what were some of those very roadblocks? Difficult. Well, American at that time, even before COVID, you probably know that we don't want manufacturing of candles. We don't want manufacturing of underwear. We think that shoe manufacturing should in Mexico and China because we don't need it. And so when I was applying to open the factory, there was no permit law for a factory because they haven't needed one. So they told me, you know, go look at what it's needed for opening a school and go look at what is needed for a restaurant. Combine those, you probably will be able to get a permit. So I was furious. My, um, my lease started way before I was able to get um, the permit. And I wasted a lot of time or money on hiring people that cannot start working until much later because of this sort of confusion about law. That's the reason I was also um, invited. Remember, you mentioned talking to the president uh, at that time, Mr. Obama, about creating manufacturing jobs because in the early 2011, um, the country has seen some sign of returning uh, manufacturing from big companies, Ford, uh, Caterpillar, uh, you know, major uh, blue chip companies. And the president saw the opportunity to do what's called reshoring American jobs. And Boston Consulting put together this uh, summit with uh, 13 major blue chip companies and a tiny little company called Chesapeake Bay. And there I was sitting next to the president talking about why we moved the manufacturing jobs back and how important it is to create an environment that manufacturing jobs can be, um, can be considered important to this country, important enough that we should not be uh, going through red tapes for years in order to open one. Well, we have so to leave it at that. Something. We have two minutes left and uh, I mean, it's gone by very quickly. I know there's so much more to the story, obviously, and there's a lot to yes. the story. So people should be reading your book. May she is the author so. and she yes. is founder of the Chesapeake Bay Candle Company, which we've been talking about in her journey. Um, so the title of the book is Burn, How Grit, Innovation, and a Dash of Luck Ignited a Multi-Million Dollar Success Story. So May, give us website and or websites we can go to to have people right. get more information and sort of continue this conversation. 
Excellent. So I recently launched a website actually during the pandemic. Yes, she may, M-A-Y. It really helps women brands around the world, women-owned brands and women designers who have lost a lot of revenue because of the closure of all the shops and stores in person so that they can tap into the great American consumer market. We're the most innovative population. We really like to support others. And I hope We've that... We've got one um, minute left. With the, <laughs> so, I, I yeah. hope with the... With the, with the power of our purse, we can support women-owned businesses because that's the group that I really feel has suffered the most during uh, pandemic is the mothers that have to take care of home uh, and children. So let's give them some opportunities so that they can survive and thrive. And I great. do feel that's- they have great products. Yes, she may. So it's www.yesshemay.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. Have a great day. Yep, you too. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 